Chapter 11 The Life and Adventures of James P. Beckworth Mountaineer, Scout, and Pioneer, and Chief of the Crow Nation of Indians Written from his own dictation by T.D. Bonner This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. After we had rested, we departed for Snake River, making the Blackfoot Buttes on our way, in order to pass through the Buffalo region. I received a severe lecture from Mr. Sublet for my rashness while at the trading post. The second day of our march, one of our men, while fishing, detected a party of Blackfeet in the act of stealing our horses in the open day. But for the man, they would have succeeded in making off with a great number. The alarm was given, and we mounted and gave immediate chase. The Indians were forty-four in number and on foot. Therefore, they became an easy prey. We ran them into a thicket of dry bush, which we surrounded and then fired in several places. It was quite dry, and there being a good breeze at the time, it burned like chafe. This, driving the Indians out, as fast as they made their appearance, we shot them with our rifles. Every one of them was killed. Those who escaped our bullets were consumed in the fire. And as they were all more or less roasted, we took no scalps. None of our party were hurt, except one, who was wounded by one of our men. On the third day, we found buffalo and killed great numbers of them by a surround. At this place, we lost six horses, three of them belonging to myself, two to a Swiss, and one to Baptiste. Not relishing the idea of losing them, for they were splendid animals, and seeing no signs of Indians, I and the Swiss started along the back track in pursuit, with the understanding that we would rejoin our company at the Buttes. We followed them to the last place of rendezvous. Their tracks were fresh and plain, but we could gain no sight of our horses. We then gave up the chase and encamped in a thicket. In the morning we started to return and had not proceeded far when, hearing a noise in our rear, I looked round and saw between two and three hundred Indians within a few hundred yards of us. They soon discovered us, and from their not making immediate pursuit, I inferred that they mistook us for two of their own party. However, they soon gave chase. They being also on foot, I said to my companion, Now we have as good a chance of escaping as they have of overtaking us. The Swiss, named Alexander, said, It is of no use for me to try to get away. I cannot run. Save yourself and never mind me. No, I replied, I will not leave you. Run as fast as you can until you reach the creek. There you can secrete yourself, for they will pursue me. He followed my advice and saved himself. I crossed the stream, and when I again appeared in sight of the Indians, I was on the summit of a small hill two miles in advance. Giving a general yell, they came in pursuit of me. On I ran, not daring to indulge the hope that they would give up the chase, for some of the Indians are great runners, 
and would rather die than incur the ridicule of their brethren. On, on we tore, I to save my scalp, and my pursuers to win it. At length I reached the buttes, where I had expected to find the camp, but to my inconceivable horror and dismay, my comrades were not there. They had found no water on their route, and had proceeded to the river forty-five miles distant. My feelings at this disappointment transcended expression. A thousand ideas peopled my feverish brain at once. Home, friends, and my loved one presented themselves with one lightning flash. The Indians were close at my heels. Their bullets were whizzing past me. Their yells sounded painfully in my ears, and I could almost feel the knife making a circuit round my skull. On I bounded, however, following the road which our whole company had made. I was scorching with thirst, having tasted neither sup nor bite since we commenced the race. Still on I went with the speed of an antelope. I kept safely in advance of the range of their bullets, when suddenly the glorious sight of the camp smoke caught my eye. My companions perceived me at a mile from the camp, as well as my pursuers, and mounting their horses to meet me, soon turned the tables on my pursuers. It was now the Indians' turn to be chased. They must have suffered as badly with thirst as I did, and our men cut them off from the river. Night had begun to close in, under the protection of which the Indians escaped. Our men returned with only five scalps. According to the closest calculation, I ran that day ninety-five miles. My heels thus deprived the rascally Indians of their anticipated pleasure of dancing over my scalp. My limbs were so much swollen the next morning that for two or three days ensuing it was with great difficulty I got about. My whole system was also in great pain. In a few days, however, I was as well as ever and ready to repay the Indians for their trouble. The third day after my escape, my companion, Alec, found his way into camp. He entered the lodge with dejection on his features. Oh, he exclaimed, I thank God for my escape, but the Indians have killed poor Jim. I saw his bones a few miles back. I will give anything I have if a party will go with me and bury him. The wolves have almost picked his bones, but it must be he. Poor, poor Jim, gone at last. Ha, said someone present. Is Jim killed then? Poor fellow. Well, Alec, let us go back and give him a Christian burial. He had seen a body nearly devoured on the way, most likely that of the wounded Indian who had chased me in his retreat from our camp. I came limping into the crowd at this moment and addressed him before he had perceived me. Hello, Alec. Are you safe? He looked at me for a moment in astonishment and then embraced me so tight that I thought he would suffocate me. He burst into a flood of tears, which for a time prevented his articulation. He looked at me again and again, as if in doubt of my identity. At length he said, Oh, Jim, you are safe. 
And how did you escape? I made sure that you were killed and that the body I saw on the road was yours. Ah, Pishaw, I stopped and shed tears on a confounded dead Indian's carcass. Alex stated that the enemy had passed within ten feet without perceiving him, that his gun was cocked and well-primed, so that if he had been discovered, there would have been at least one redskin less to chase me. He had seen no Indians on his way to camp. I was satisfied that some, if not all, of my pursuers knew me, for they were Blackfeet, or they would not have taken such extraordinary pains to run me down. If they had succeeded in their endeavor, they would, in subsequent years, have saved their tribe many scalps. From this encampment, we moved on to Lewis's Fork on the Columbia River, where we made a final halt to prepare for the fall trapping season. Some small parties, getting tired of inaction, would occasionally sally out to the small mountain streams, all of which contained plenty of beaver and would frequently come in with several skins. I prepared my traps one day, thinking to go out alone and see what my luck might be. I mounted my horse and, on approaching a small stream, dismounted to take a careful survey to see if there were any signs of beaver. Carefully ascending the bank of the stream, I peered over and saw, not a beaver, but an Indian. He had his robe spread on the grass and was engaged in freeing himself from vermin, with which all Indians abound. He had not seen nor heard me. His face was toward me, but inclined, and he was intently pursuing his occupation. Here, thought I, are a gun, a bow, a quiver full of arrows, a good robe, and a scalp. I fired my rifle. The Indian fell over without uttering a sound. I not only took his scalp, but his head. I tied two locks of his long hair together, hung his head on the horn of my saddle, and taking the spoils of the enemy, hurried back to camp. The next morning, our camp was invested by 2,500 warriors of the Blackfoot tribe. We had now something on our hands which demanded attention. We were encamped in the bend of a river, in the horseshoe. Our lodges were pitched at the entrance, or narrowest part of the shoe, while our animals were driven back into the bend. The lodges, four deep, extended nearly across the land, forming a kind of barricade in front. Not a very safe one for the inmates, since... Being covered with buffalo hides, they were penetrable to bullet and arrow. The Indians made a furious charge. We immediately placed the women and children in the rear, sending them down the bend, where they were safe unless we were defeated. We suffered the Indians for a long time to act on the offensive, being content with defending ourselves and the camp. I advised Captain Sublet to let them weary themselves with charging, by which time we would mount and charge them with greater prospect of victory. Whereas, should we tire ourselves while they were fresh, we should be overwhelmed by their numbers, and, if not defeated, inevitably lose a great many men. All the mountaineers approved of my advice, 
and our plans were taken accordingly. They drove us from our first position twice, so that our lodges were between the contending ranks, but they never broke our lines. When they approached us very near, we resorted to our arrows, which all our half-breeds used as skillfully as the Indians. Finally, perceiving they began to tire, I went and ordered the women to saddle the horses in haste. A horse was soon ready for each man, four hundred in number. Taking one hundred and thirty men, I passed out through the timber, keeping near the river until we could all emerge and form a line to charge them, unobserved in the rear. While executing this diversion, the main body was to charge them in front. While defiling through the timber, we came suddenly upon ten Indians who were resting from the fight, and were sitting on the ground unconcernedly smoking their pipes. We killed nine of them, the tenth one making good his retreat. Our maneuver succeeded admirably. The Indians were unconscious of our approach in their rear until they began to fall from their horses. Then charging on their main body simultaneously with Captain Sublet's charge in front, their whole force was thrown into irretrievable confusion, and they fled without farther resistance. We did not pursue them, feeling very well satisfied to have got rid of them as we had. They left 167 dead on the field. Our loss was also very severe. 16 killed, mostly half-breeds, and 50 or 60 wounded. In this action, I received a wound in my left side, although I did not perceive it until the battle was over. As usual, there was a scalp dance after the victory, in which I really feared that the fair sex would dance themselves to death. They had a crying spell afterward for the dead. After all, it was a victory rather dearly purchased. A few days after our battle, one of our old trappers, named Le Bleu, who had spent twenty years in the mountains, came to me and telling me he knew of a small stream full of beaver, which ran into Lewis's Fork, about thirty miles from camp, wished me to accompany him there. We being free trappers at that time, the chance of obtaining a pack or two of beaver was rather a powerful incentive. Gain being my object, I readily acceded to his proposal. We put out from camp during the night and traveled up Lewis's Fork, leisurely discussing our prospects and confidently enumerating our unhatched chickens when suddenly a large party of Indians came in sight in our rear. The banks of the river we were traveling along were precipitous and rocky, and skirted with a thick bush. We entered the bush without a moment's hesitation, for the Indians advanced on us as soon as they had caught sight of us. Le Bleu had a small bell attached to his horse's neck, which he took off and, creeping to a large bush, fastened it with the end of his lariat, and returned holding the other end in his hand. This stratagem caused the Indians to expend a great amount of powder and shot in their effort to kill the bell, for of course they supposed the bell indicated the position of ourselves. When they approached near enough to be seen through the bushes, 
we fired one gun at a time, always keeping the other loaded. When we fired, the bell would ring, as if the horse was started by the close proximity of the gun, but the smoke would not rise in the right place. They continued to shoot at random into the bushes without injuring us or our faithful animals who were close by us but entirely concealed from the sight of the Indians. My companion filled his pipe and commenced smoking with as much song fra as if he had been in camp. This is the last smoke I expect to have between here and camp, said he. What are we to do, I inquired, not feeling our position very secure in a brush fort manned with a company of two and beleaguered by scores of Blackfoot warriors. In an instant, before I had time to think, crack went his rifle, and down came an Indian who, more bold than the rest, had approached too near to our garrison. Now, said LeBlue, bind your leggings and moccasins around your head. I did so while he obeyed the same order. Now follow me. Wondering what bold project he was about to execute, I quietly obeyed him. He went noisily to the edge of the bluff, looked narrowly up and down the river, and then commenced to slide down the almost perpendicular bank, I closely following him. We safely reached the river, into which we dropped ourselves. We swam close under the bank for more than a mile until they discovered us. Now, said my comrade, strike across the stream in double quick time. We soon reached the opposite bank and found ourselves a good mile and a half ahead of the Indians. They commenced plunging into the river in pursuit, but they were too late. We ran across the open ground until we reached a mountain, where we could safely look back and laugh at our pursuers. We had lost our horses and guns while they had sacrificed six or eight of their warriors besides missing the two scalps they made so certain of getting hold of. I had thought myself a pretty good match for the Indians, but I at once resigned all claims to merit. LeBleu, in addition to all the acquired wiles of the Red Man, possessed his own superior art and cunning. He could be surrounded with no difficulties for which his inexhaustible brain could not devise some secure mode of escape. We arrived safe at camp before the first guard was relieved. The following morning, we received a severe reprimand from Captain Sublet for exposing ourselves on so hazardous an adventure. As soon as the wounded were sufficiently recovered to be able to travel, we moved down the river to the junction of Salt River with Guy's Fork, about a mile from Snake River. The next day, the captain resolved to pass up to Guy's Fork to a convenient camping ground, where we were to spend the interval until it was time to separate into small parties and commence trapping in good earnest for the season. One day, while moving leisurely along, two men and myself proposed to the captain to proceed ahead of the main party to ascertain the best road to reconnoiter the various streams, in short, to make it a trip of discovery. We were to encamp one night, and rejoined the main body the next morning. The captain consented, but gave us strict caution to take good care of ourselves. 
Nothing of importance occurred that day, but the next morning, about sunrise, we were all thunderstruck at being roused from our sleep by the discharge of guns close at hand. Two of us rose in an instant and gave the war hoop as a challenge for them to come on. Poor Cotton, the third of our party, was killed at the first fire. When they saw us arise, rifle in hand, they drew back, whereas had they rushed on with their battle axes, they could have killed us in an instant. One of our horses was also killed, which, with the body of our dead comrade, we used for a breastwork, throwing up at the same time all the dirt we could to protect ourselves as far as we were able. The Indians, five hundred in number, showered their balls at us, but, being careful to keep at a safe distance, they did us no damage for some time. At length, my companion received a shot through the heel, while carelessly throwing up his feet and crawling to get a sight at the Indians without exposing his body. I received some slight scratches, but no injury that occasioned me any real inconvenience. Providence at last came to our relief. Our camp was moving along slowly, shooting buffalo occasionally, when some of the women, hearing our guns, ran to the captain, exclaiming, There is a fight! Hark! Hear the guns! He, concluding that there was more distant fighting than is common in killing buffalo, dispatched sixty men in all possible haste in the direction of the reports. We saw them as they appeared in sight on the brow of a hill not far distant and sent up a shout of triumph. The Indians also caught sight of them and immediately retreated, leaving seventeen warriors dead in front of our little fort, whom we relieved of their scalps. We returned to camp after burying our companion, whose body was literally riddled with bullets. The next day, we made a very successful surround of buffalo, killing great numbers of them. In the evening, several of our friends, the snakes, came to us and told us their village was only five miles farther up, wishing us to move up near them to open a trade. After curing our meat, we moved on and encamped near the friendly snakes. We learned that there were 185 lodges of Poonocks encamped only two miles distant, a discarded band of the snakes, very bad Indians, and very great thieves. Captain Sublet informed the snakes that if the Poonocks should steal any of his horses or anything belonging to his camp, he would rub them all out, and he wished the friendly snakes to tell them so. Two of our men, and one of the snakes having strolled down to the Poonock lodges one evening, they were set upon, and the snake was killed, and the two of our camp came home wounded. The morning volunteers were called to punish the Poonocks for their outrage. Two hundred and fifty immediately presented themselves at the call, and our captain appointed Bridger leader of the troop. We started to inflict vengeance. But when we arrived at the site of the village, behold, there was no village there. They had packed up and left immediately after the perpetration of the outrage, they fearing, no doubt, that ample vengeance would be taken upon them. We followed their trail forty-five miles, 
and came up with them on Green River. Seeing our approach, they all made across to a small island in the river. What shall we do now, Jim? inquired our leader. I will cross to the other side with one half the men, I suggested, and get abreast of the island. Their retreat will be thus cut off, and we can exterminate them in their trap. Go, said he. I will take them if they attempt to make this shore. I was soon in position, and the enfilading commenced, and was continued until there was not one left of either sex or any age. We carried back 488 scalps, and, as we then supposed, annihilated the Punak band. On our return, however, we found six or eight of their squaws, who had been left behind in the fight, whom we carried back and gave to the snakes. On informing the snakes of what had taken place, they expressed great delight. Right, they said. Punoks, very bad Indians. And they joined in the scalp dance. We afterward learned that the Punoks, when they fled from our vengeance, had previously sent their old men and a great proportion of their women and children to the mountains, at which we were greatly pleased as it spared the effusion of much unnecessary blood. They had a great medicine chief slain with the others on the island. His medicine was not good this time, at least. We proceeded thence to a small creek called Blackfoot Creek, and the heart of the Blackfoot country. It was always our custom, before turning out our horses in the morning, to send out spies to reconnoiter around, and see if any Indians were lurking about to steal them. When preparing to move one morning from the last-named creek, we sent out two men, but they had not proceeded twenty yards from our corral before a dozen shots were fired at them by a party of Blackfeet, bringing them from their horses severely wounded. In a moment, the whole camp was in motion. The savages made a bold and desperate attempt to rush upon the wounded men and get their scalps, but we were on the ground in time to prevent them, and drove them back, killing four of their number. The next day, we were overtaken by the snakes, who, hearing of our skirmish, expressed great regret that they were not present to have followed them and given them battle again. We seldom followed the Indians after having defeated them unless they had stolen our horses. It was our policy always to act on the defensive, even to tribes that were known enemies. When the snakes were ready, we all moved on together for the head of Green River. The Indians numbered six or seven thousand, including women and children. Our number was nearly eight hundred altogether, forming quite a formidable little army, or more properly, a moving city. The number of horses belonging to the whole camp was immense. We had no farther difficulty in reaching Green River, where we remained six days. During this short stay, our numberless horses exhausted the grass in our vicinity, and it was imperative to change position. It was now early in September, and it was time to break up our general encampment and spread in all directions as the hunting and trapping season was upon us.
Before we formed our dispersing parties, a number of the crows came to our camp and were rejoiced to see us again. The snakes and crows were extremely amicable. The crows were questioning the snakes about some scalps hanging on our lodge poles. They gave them the particulars of our encounter with the Blackfeet, how valiantly we had fought them, and how we had defeated them. The crows were highly gratified to see so many scalps taken from their old and inveterate foes. They wished to see the braves who had fought so nobly. I was pointed out as the one who had taken the greatest number of scalps. They told them that they had seen me fight, and that I was a very great brave. Upon this, I became the object of the crow's admiration. They were very anxious to talk to me and to cultivate my acquaintance, but I could speak very little of their language. One of our men, named Greenwood, whose wife was a crow, could speak their language fluently. He and his wife were generally resorted to by the crows to afford full details of our recent victory. Greenwood, becoming tired of so much questioning, invented a fiction, which greatly amused me for its ingenuity. He informed them that the white-handled knife, as the snakes called me, was a crow. They all started in astonishment at this information and asked how that could be. Said Greenwood in reply, You know that so many winters ago, the Cheyennes defeated the crows, killing many hundreds of their warriors and carrying off a great many of their women and children. Yes, we know it, they all exclaimed. Well, he was a little boy at that time, and the whites bought him of the Cheyennes, with whom he has stayed ever since. He has become a great brave among them, and all your enemies fear him. On hearing this astonishing revelation, they said that I must be given to them. Placing implicit faith in every word that they had heard, they hastened to their village to disseminate the joyful news that they had found one of their own people who had been taken by the Cheyennes when a Bar Carta, child, who had been sold to the whites, and who had now become a great white chief, with his lodge pole full of the scalps of the Blackfeet, who had fallen beneath his gun and battle axe. This excited a great commotion throughout their whole village. All the old women who remembered the defeat when the Crows lost 2,000 warriors and a host of women and children with the ensuing captivity were wondering if the great brave was not their own child. Thereupon ensued the greatest anxiety to see me and claim me as a son. I did not say a word impugning the authenticity of Greenwood's romance. I was greatly edified at the inordinate gullibility of the Red Man, and when they had gone to spread their tale of wonderment, we had a hearty laugh at their expense. Our party now broke up. Detachments were formed and leaders chosen. We issued from the camp and started in all directions, receiving instructions to return within a certain day. There were a great many fur trappers with us, who hunted for their own profit, 
and disposed of their peltry to the mountain traders. The trappers were accompanied by a certain number of hired men, selected according to their individual preferences, the strength of their party being regulated by the danger of the country they were going to. If a party was going to the Blackfoot country, it needed to be numerous and well-armed. If going among the crows or snakes, where no danger was apprehended, there would go few or many, just as was agreed upon among themselves. But each party was in strict obedience to the will of its captain or leader. His word was supreme law. My party started for the crow country, at which I was well content, for, being a supposed crow myself, I expected to fare well among them. It seemed a relief also to be in a place where we could rest from our unsleeping vigilance and to feel, when we rose in the morning, there was some probability of our living till night. End of chapter 11